understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And uh, before we do anything else, we want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for the second hour of today's show are Eurostar Gold Corp. and Liberty Silver Corp. Well, I'm really pl- uh, pleased to have Alistair McLeod with us again. He was uh, with us last week, and just, we just ran out of time. There wasn't enough time to cover everything, and there won't be enough time to cover everything that Alistair has to tell us today, too, I'm sure, within the next half hour or so. Uh, but it is really good to have him back. Uh, for those of you who may not have been with us last week, uh, he runs the uh, financeandeconomics.org website that's dedicated to sound money and demystifying uh, finance and economics. You know, we have this uh, this whole notion that, Economics and finance is so sophisticated and so difficult. Well, certainly uh, the uh, the tools that are used by uh, the traders have become quite sophisticated with black box mathematical models and so forth. But when it comes down to it, human behavior is not so mysterious as they would have you to believe. So Alistair, uh, he uses his uh, background as a stockbroker, as a banker, and as an economist to help people see the world, uh, well, really in, to simplify things and to help us understand free market economics to a great, uh, to a great extent. He is a senior fellow at uh, Gold Money Foundation, which is uh, Gold Money is certainly one of my favorite websites, goldmoney.com, because they, uh, they really are all about free markets, uh, sound money, uh, which goes with free markets. Uh, Alistair's, uh, he writes a weekly article uh, for Gold Money, and that is available to anyone who signs up for it. Uh, and you can also read his material at uh, alistairmcleod.blogspot.com. That's Alistair, and I always spell his name wrong. My wife always corrects me. It's A-L-A-S-D-A-I-R-M-A-C-L-E-O-D, mcleod.blogspot.com. Welcome, Alistair. Really good to have you back with us again. It's my pleasure, Jay. And you're talking to us from across the pond today, I believe. Yes, I am, in uh, in England, where it's rainy. Well, for a change, huh? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like Vancouver and like New York today, actually. Well, so they say. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, every day there, maybe. But uh, you're, you're actually, I think uh, when we met in Toronto or someplace recently, you said uh, that you're not, um, you're not in London. You're somewhere else in England. Yeah, no, it's, I'm in the West Country, a county called Devon, which is about 170 miles to the west of London. Okay, well, it's... Uh, I, I've never been there. I've been only to London and England. I guess it would be nice to travel around the country. And it's like going to New York City and saying I've been to the United States. It's not exactly so. And I would imagine that uh, the year area is somewhat different than, than London. Yeah, um, well, well br- bring an umbrella. You'll have a great time. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, but the one thing that's nice about rainy climates is when you have sunshine, everything is really beautiful and on those rare that's, occasions. That is true. Uh, okay. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about something you wrote uh, some time ago, back in May, I think. All roads in Europe lead to gold. Uh, can you outline for our listeners the origin of the European crisis? Perhaps just for those, I mean, I think many of us know and sort of understand and get it. But but tell us what 
what was flawed about the European Union, the concept to begin with? Well, um, the, the whole idea was that uh, if you got countries together, then uh, politically it would be hard for them to fight each other. That, yeah. was the, that was the original idea behind the forerunner for the European Union. Uh, and um, then there was the thought that, uh, you know, if you... Uh, remove trade barriers between these countries, then uh, free trade would be promoted. But actually what's happened is that uh, most of the countries have either retreated into their own form of socialism or alternatively, um, you know, the sort of, if you like, the gravy train of Brussels and all the money that's raised to run this huge great political machine uh, leeches out into political pockets. And so you have... Um, uh, I think what you call the pork barrel. I mean, we <laughs> in Europe we have it we have it big time, and then uh, the last stage of it was the euro, which was uh, again uh, a currency which was meant to level the playing field, if I can use that cliche, uh, but actually was a fudge right from the start. Uh, the countries that joined the euro were meant to, uh, under the Maastricht Treaty to um, have their um, level of government debt less than sixty percent of GDP, and also to have their uh, budget deficit less than 3% of GDP. Mm. Not one of the countries that joined actually qualified, but they all joined nonetheless. So you can see the whole thing was a fudge right from the start. And, um, you know, they're now being found out. So you're saying that at the time of the Maastricht Treaty, or when the Euro was, the European Union was drawn up, not a single country there, not even Germany, had a debt that was less than 60% of GDP. That's right. Germ <laughs> not even Germany could could meet the qualifications. Now, since then, a few other countries have, di have joined, like Finland, for example, and I think uh -huh. they qualified on their own rights. But, I mean, uh, Luxembourg probably qualified, but, I mean, that's a very, very small country. Um, but, you know, the big boys, you know, Italy, France, uh, Spain, Germany, um, you know, I mean, well, Greece came in later, and actually that's a, that's a, a good example of how the whole thing was abused, because... Greece's uh, borrowing costs in the year 2000 or 1999 when all this was founded and they didn't join uh, was around about 125 to 13%. Um, then they announced that they were going to be, that they were going to be joining the euro um, and uh, miraculously their borrowing costs came down towards the euro level. And before they came in, it fell to around about 6 or 7%. And then... Uh, a couple of years in, it was way down to around about three and a half percent. But they were bust the whole way through, you know. <laughs> so you can see the thing was a complete, complete fudge. So what it did was obscure the economic reality by socializing the the economy, the global, the the European economy. Is that what it did? Yes, it did that, and it also did something else. Um, of course, uh, you know, banks uh, started lending to governments on the basis that if they were in the eurozone, then the risks, because there was no exit, the risks were effectively, um, you know, not not much greater than the risk of a German default. So, right. if Germany, if if German bonds were yielding, let's say, two percent, then um, you know, you could go into the market, you could you could um, gear up your positions. Uh, and probably um, uh, lend to Greece, uh, gear up your position 20 times and strip out, um, you know, 1.5%. And that's what they were doing. So, you know, 1.5% times 20, 20 times, you know, knock off a little bit for, for costs, and you've got, um, 
you know, sort of 30% per annum return on, on, on equity. I mean, this is wonderful stuff. The result was that there was all this um, bank credit available to all the governments, and so they spent like fury, uh, you know. And, of course, now we have the situation where it has come to a shuddering halt. Okay, so what we need to do and what, well, what they're trying to do then, and so far it seems like the, uh, the people at the top, the, the ruling elite, are having their way with Mrs. Merkel and others, seemingly uh, allowing more and more of the wealth in Germany and uh, perhaps France being redistributed to, to the southern European countries. Isn't that what's going on? And, and is there any sign that that's going to end? Uh, you're right in putting it that way. It's a redistribution of wealth, uh, principally not, not from France, but Germany, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Finland, and Austria, and Luxembourg. Those are the countries who are basically keeping all the rest afloat. Um, and the cost to the German taxpayer is really quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, to give you an idea, um, the amount of money which... Um, and I've got this from two independent sources, one uh, an, a German economist um, who is a professor of economics at um, San Pablo University in Madrid, mm-hmm. and another one, um, Marcus Kerber, who was uh, one of the leading lights in presenting the case to the German constitutional court recently. Um, the amount of money that Germany is in the hole for um, so far as they can see, I mean, what's already there and what's likely coming down the pipeline is somewhere between three and a half and four trillion euros. Wow. To give you, yeah, to give you a context, uh, Germany's GDP is 2.3 trillion euros. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, it, you know, it, 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 it is impossible. It, it is as simple as that. It is completely impossible. So nearly two years worth of a uh, year and a half or so of GDP is, and, and that's what they're seeing Germany uh, on the hook for to try to keep these other countries in the union, essentially not not helping them grow and become prosperous, but just keeping the thing from falling apart. Is that it? That's right. Uh, now, um, a little while ago, uh, the Keynesians, um, who unfortunately are all over the place. Oh, yeah, um, everywhere still. <laughs> I'm afraid so, yes. They're like midges on a, on a, on a wet autumn Well, they've afternoon. been the ones that have been rewarded uh, academically and then professionally by, by proposing uh, Keynesian economics and socialism. Yeah, exactly. But what the econ- what 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 the uh, um, uh, Keynesians were hoping for that you know if you bail out these governments, then when their economies recover, the uh, tax bit you know recovers, and therefore the budget deficits disappear. Yeah. disappear and um, you then got solvent governments. That's yeah. that is the sort of Keynesian thing. But the idea that uh, you're going to get any economic recovery, uh, as any Austrian economist will tell you in this situation, is is um, completely fanciful. Well, for a while, uh, you know, looking at the U.S. economy, which I can speak to a little more because that's where I've lived all my life here in the United States. For a while, when you had economic declines, the government would go in and spend a bit more and uh, deficit spend and, and things would come back. But I'm wondering if we haven't gone through that cycle so often and uh, the, the we've never been allowed to come back to equilibrium that, in fact, it's gotten to the place now where it can't be, where the debt cannot lo- any longer be expanded beyond this level. Do you think that's where we're at now? Uh, yes, and I think, I think, I think uh, uh, Jay, there is another limitation which is extremely important, and that is the burden of debt from successive credit-driven cycles uh-huh. has now amounted to such a huge level that it cannot be pushed into another cycle. Right, yes. 
Yes, I believe that very much. And I know that I look at uh, here in the United States and some of the work that Robert Prechter and others have done as well, looking at the total debt to GDP. And I believe it got up to something, in, you know, we're not talking just about government, but in the United States, something like 360% of uh, GDP, or three, three point, yeah, 360% or 3.6 times GDP. I think in the 1930s, it got up to 2, two uh, 90 or something like that, perhaps. Not, not even that high. So it, we, it's never been so high as this before, and it seems to me that's why all this Keynesian stimulus isn't working at all anymore, is it? It's just, it's just too well, much debt. That's right. It's run out of road. But then there is another problem. I mean, you, you, you referred back to um, sort of post-war. Um, I mean, when all the Allies had enormous amount of debt as a result of the cost of the war. Um, they didn't have the welfare costs at that time. They didn't have the demographic, demographic time bomb of, you know, pensioners and all the rest of it. Where we are now is we have a situation where uh, the mounting costs of these future liabilities, the net present value of them, if you take them back under proper accounting, is just so enormous. I think um, authoritative sources in America reckon that the net present value of these future welfare costs rose $11 trillion last year mm. from 211 to $222 trillion. So... You know, um, this is very different from the situation post-war when you had the last, um, if you like, um, uh, debt-to-GDP hump. Um, this time round, uh, <laughs> you know, there is, you've got these enormous costs in the pipeline, which, um, you know, what, what do governments do? I mean, do they... Do they um, have pensions starving? Do they um, uh, stop operations on the poor? I mean, you know, politically... We live in a world of welfare states. You cannot do that. Yet no. Things have moved on. It's, it, it is very, very difficult. Well, and the, the uh, Austrians also understand the concept of malinvestment, where you, uh, where you, where you create money and, and, and push it, uh, capital, essentially, into areas of the economy that are not productive and certainly would be what socialism is all about, I would, I would think. Uh, well, so, okay, so, so what Greece is... Okay, so you've outlined the problem you know the basic pathology of the european union um and again the hope was that that somehow we'll get growth again coming back but we're seeing that's not happening uh it's not happening anywhere in the world that i can see anyway a little bit of modest growth here in the united states perhaps but then you know people get tapped out on their credit cards and they have to reach they have to you know sort of cut back again and it's just uh, we're, we're not going anywhere fast what um so how is this going to all play out? Because you, you seem to believe that ultimately the European Union is doomed. Uh, am I correct in saying that? Well, the euro is, is doomed. Um, okay. And, 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 and that is a, a real body blow to the political aspirations of um, the leadership of the European Union. I don't think the European Union as such is doomed. Okay. But I certainly, certainly see the, 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 the euro... Maybe not doomed. I mean, to my mind, the only solution there is for Germany and Finland and the Netherlands to move out. And what I would do if I was uh, Chancellor Merkel is I would, um, if you like, give the Keynesians <laughs> if, in, in, in the Mediterranean countries the opportunity to operate with a lower currency because that is the Keynesian remedy. If you get yeah. the currency down, then you get your manufacturing costs down and you become competitive. Okay, well, let them try it. Yeah, let and them try if, it. You know, yeah, and I think, 
I, I think if the if the IMF um, and you know the G10 rally round and Germany puts some money in the pot as well, um, I think there could be um, the possibility of buying. Um, those stronger countries out of, you know, they could buy their way out of the problem with a little bit of help from elsewhere uh, and just let, um, you know, the rump of the euro, um, uh, you know, sort of to leave them to their own fate. I mean, that's, but it would give them the exit. And I think they do need an exit because you cannot, you cannot bear the costs uh, that we see mounting because there is no exit. There is no way you get paid back. If you're a German, you know, if you're Germany, throwing money at Spain or Italy, you're not going to get your money back. And right. that, is, that, that is a, a complete nonsense. It's a horrible investment. Well, what about the politics within Germany? There certainly are people that understand this and are pushing for it. Why has, uh, you know, Merkel doesn't seem to be submitting to them very much. As she, she seems to really be beholden to the, the, the global ruling elite more than anybody. Well, Merkel is, yes, I mean, she's in a, she, she is in an extremely difficult position. And, and I actually think she's played her cards uh, very, very well. Um, she's got elections coming up, I think, in November next year. Um, and um, there is no doubt that as you get closer to that date, things are going to get more and more political internally in Germany. And she's mm -hmm. going to have to uh, face that. So I expect she will anticipate those problems to a degree, which is why I think she's got to leave sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. uh, because if she, the later she leaves it, I think the worse it is going to be for, for Merkel. That, mm -hmm. that is what I see the domestic political situation mm -hmm. or how I see it. Well, but how much is Merkel in charge of, uh, of what Germany does? Well, I mean, how much in charge is any politician? Well, exactly um, right. You know, they, 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 they are elected on a mandate, usually which they can't carry out, um, and uh, they have to sort of muddle along, and I don't think she's any different in that sense. I just, all I would say is the way she muddles along is perhaps with a bit more skill than most. Yeah, well, I mean, we certainly, uh, many of us don't believe that Mr. Obama or Mr. Bush or whoever we have in office here is really the boss either. So, I mean, I just wonder where the, the powers that are forcing this unnatural union to take place. And it's, you know, it seems to me um, very sinister in some ways. But, uh, uh, well, well, so uh, France, I mean, you would, I have always thought of France as a pretty strong country, but based on what I read, the article that uh, that you had written, what about France? They're having their troubles too, aren't they? I mean, they're very socialistic. They don't want to work very hard. Yes, they're very socialistic. They're very uh, nationalistic. They're very inward-looking. Um, they're controlled by an elite. Um, and 56% uh, of the economy is the state, which only leaves 44%. To produce um, being, anything of wealth. To produce, to produce anything. And they're now, um, <laughs> you know, they're now trying to tax... Um, Oh, you know, anyone who earns more than a million, million euros, 75% uh, tax. So you've had some pretty high-profile cases decide to leave the country. Um, you have um, small businesses are, are now uh, revolting against uh, the proposed capital gains taxes. Um, I mean, you know, France is, 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 is a classic case. It's not a bubble. It's not a collapsing bubble they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. What they have is the, the state is strangling the private sector. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, if you want to employ anyone in France... The cost, if you pay someone a salary, let's say, of 30,000 francs a year, the cost of employing that person is another 30 to 40,000 francs on top. Hmm. 
You know, it's more than double. Employment, employment taxes. And, um, you know, so you've got an endemic unemployment problem in France, which no politician seems to be able to resolve. Mm -hmm. And, the, you know, when Hollande got elected, I mean, he got elected because he was different from Sarkozy, um, yeah. uh, and he's a socialist. And really, that's the French electric saying, we don't want any of this austerity. Um, <laughs> so the first thing he does is he, he reverses the uh, increase in the retirement age. from it was, it, it was increased by Sarkozy from 60 to 62. He knocks it back to 60. Uh -huh. I mean, the, the, the costs of doing all these things, um, the costs, if you like, that he's imposing on the private sector, which is making it even, it's, it's just strangling it, absolutely strangling it. There's no way there's going to be any recovery in France at all. And I think France is an extremely dangerous place um, from the point of view of putting any money into it. Yeah, well, you would think so. Uh, if there's a 75% tax rate for those people making over a million dollars, what was it before? Uh, I honestly can't remember, Jay, but, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it 50%. was a lot lower. It was maybe 50 yeah, I, I, I don't think I, I don't think it matters. What matters is the very clear signal that was given to any wealth creator. Yeah, you're not wanted. You're right. not wanted. Right. But why is this so difficult to understand? Uh, do do these politicians who pander to the uh, to people that are not wealthy uh, for for freebies for giveaways? Do they do that because they truly believe that that's that's what's good for the country? Are they just pandering and playing politics, or do, or do they just not get the notion of what how wealth is created in a in a capitalist society? I mean, I believe in America, for example, that people are ignorant of capitalism, and they think what we're seeing increasingly in America they think is capitalism, where in fact it's fascism. It's corporate interests that are that are creating laws that crowd out competition, and the smaller uh, participants can never have a chance to really pick up and compete. But do these do these politicians? that are pandering to the common folks, what are they trying to do? Can't, I mean, they, who are, why are they doing it? Is what my, I mean, they're not, they can't be that stupid. Well, I, I, think, I, I think there are two things uh, about this. Um, the first is that uh, they are advised by Keynesian stroke socialist economists mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. tell them that economically it can be done. So that encourages them never to have to face up to economic reality, but instead drive economic policy by social needs. So it's the combination of those two things. Now, I think that um, I, you know, the politicians I have met in private seem to be a lot more sensible than they are in public. Uh -huh. uh, and, and I find that across quite a wide range of political opinion. Mm -hmm. um, there are undoubtedly in politics people who just don't get it at all. Uh, but having said that, I think there is this problem that the whole system uh, is, um, if you like, run by the neoclassical establishment. I mean, just, just, just imagine this. If you're Chancellor of the Exchequer in England, George Osborne, and you suddenly have a rush of blood to the head and think, my goodness, we're destroying wealth in the private sector. What we've got to do is we've got to remove all tax from savings, um, and that's a starting point. You then go to the Treasury and tell the senior civil servants, this brainwave you've had, and you'll find that the senior civil servants will say, ooh, that's awfully brave, Minister. In other words, <laughs> you know, you try that one and you're going to come a cropper. So, um, you know, if, if your senior civil servants 
um, are going to not support you and, in fact, come out with every reason why you can't do it, it's very, very difficult for a politician to actually implement policies which put the economy first and social priorities second. Yeah. Well, this being an election season in the United States, you sort of get the sense and the, the, the feeling. You hear political pundits talking about uh, how Mr. Romney needs to reshape his image or how Mr. Obama needs to do such and such, and you realize that these guys... Uh, that Ronald Reagan was right when he talked about politics being the second oldest profession. I mean, these are people that are really, uh, you know, they may have, they, as you say, when you talk to them privately, they're much more reasonable than when you talk when they, you hear them in public because they're pandering to uh, to the ignorance of the population. I would I would dare say instead of being leaders and helping them understand the reality of the situation. I mean, not that I'm a Jimmy Carter fan, but I think back of the days when he put the cardigan sweater on. Uh, his economics and his policies were absolutely wrong, in my view. But he was telling the people the truth that we, you know, that 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 you can't have everything you want without paying for it, which is uh, certainly a truism. I, we have a, a couple more minutes this uh, this half hour, and I'm I'm hoping that you can stay with me for another ten minutes or so, Alistair, after our break. But is that possible? Yes, I'd be very happy to. Jay. Okay, all right. Uh, so. Uh, I'd like to start talking about various countries, and one of them that's probably uh, the most near and dear to my heart is Portugal, because my wife is Portuguese, and we go there once a year or so. We were there um, this summer. Uh, delightful country, wonderful beaches in uh, Cascais, Portugal, in the southern, not far from Lisbon. I love that country very much, uh, but it is a country that's having its difficulties. And I noticed the other day uh, that, in fact, in the, in the Financial Times, uh, I read an article where they said, uh, that the politicians, uh, they first tried to cut the programs, and I know my wife has friends who aren't going on vacation as much anymore on holidays, as they say there, uh, and they're, you know, a lot of the niceties of life have been cut back because of this. Uh, and apparently that's reached the point where a lot of the common folks are starting to rebel, and now the politicians are looking to raise taxes to try to make, to, uh, uh, to make ends meet. Um, how far do you, I don't know if you want to comment on Portugal. How much do you know about Portugal? And, um, I, know, I know a little bit. I know, you know, obviously, um, in, in, in the larger context, I know a bit about it. But uh, don't press me on detail. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I think I think the background to Portugal's problem is um, rather similar to Spain's, insofar as the uh, principal problem was um, a property boom. Uh, particularly along the Argave uh, and uh, the subsequent bust. So you've got banks which, um, you know, got themselves overextended. You've got individuals who have uh, mortgages which are now in excess of uh, the value of their property. The property prices, I doubt, have fallen as much as they really should. I think there's probably a lot more downside in property prices. Um, and that has exposed the weaknesses of a system which is inherently socialist, if you like. I mean, there's, you know, you, they, they do all the sort of central planning and so on and so forth that all modern European governments do. So that, I think, is in, in essence, is the problem. They've got themselves overextended, um, and they're trying to work their way through it um, without much clue as to how to really do it. And again, rather like how I describe things in France, um, you know, the political imperative is to clobber the rich, um, you know, tax the bankers, um, tax enterprise, um, you know, and sympathize with the, with, with the poor unemployed man. Well, we all sympathize with the poor unemployed man. Sure. I think, I think, I think the, 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 the tragedy of Portugal is that uh, it's, lo use, it's losing a lot of its young generation. Mm -hmm. um, anyone with any get up and go is uh, just, you know, they've had enough. They can't take it. There's no job for them. I mean, 
harvesting the cork trees was about the only activity where there was any employment growth in the summer. That is now pretty well over. So um, they are fortunate insofar as they can go to Brazil. They can go to Angola. The, the ex-Portuguese uh, colonies, which are now actually very, very dynamic economies, I mean, certainly compared to anything in Europe. And so the young, I think, um, have an escape route, but that's going to leave a tragedy back at home because um, you've got an increasing number, you've got this demographic, demographic time on more and more elderly people who need looking after. You've got the welfare state, um, has to pay pensions, has to pay for their health care and all the rest of it. And so Portugal is in a hole from which I cannot see there is any escape. It sounds uh, a lot like Spain, and I want to uh, talk to you about Spain when we come back after the break. But I gather then there may be a difference between France and some of these other countries. We will want to talk about Italy as well, but say France and Portugal is you're saying France hasn't had that kind of a bubble if I understood you it's just really a a socialist state that continues to uh to consume the seed capital the uh, and uh parasitically uh rob wealth creation is that what's going on in France it's going on yes. in all these countries but is that more than a property bubble what France's yeah. problem is then Yes, I think, yes, you've, you've got it right. I mean, it's not to say there hasn't been an increase in property prices over the last 10 years in France. There has, yeah. but it's not to the extent, and it hasn't had the, um, if you like, the, the, the fuel of bank credits to the same extent as, it, as we've seen in, in Spain and Portugal. Mm -hmm. All right, well, we're, we're going to have to uh, take a break now, go to our, uh, to our, get our commercials and um, the guys that help pay for the show. Uh, we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we'll be back with Alistair Madera McLeod. I'll get it right one of these days, Alistair McLeod. Um, and we're going to talk to him some more about some of the other countries uh, in Europe and also how, uh, how he sees the problems that are leading towards a gold-backed currency, I believe. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come back. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. 
Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000-ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Yeah, I'm here. Yep. Oh, oh okay, we're back. Um, welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I guess your your host fell asleep there or something. I don't know. I, I didn't hear the music, and I didn't realize we were back on uh, back on live. Well, it's uh, good to have Alistair McClare back with me. I think, how can I get that wrong all the time? Alistair McLeod, Jay, it's McLeod. Alistair McLeod, we met up, was it in Chicago, I believe? Was it Alistair or was it Toronto? Uh in that, well, it was Chicago last time, and before that in New York. Yeah, Chicago, and I was just in Toronto, and I couldn't remember. I see so many people at these uh, conferences, and I forget where I see people, but uh, it was really good to see you, and uh, Alistair McLeod, good to have you back. Now, uh, we were talking about some of these countries. We talked about Germany. We talked about France. Uh, Spain, to a great extent, uh, is their, their problem is very similar to Portugal's, I guess. They had this huge property boom which was created by excess credit that was pumped into the system right yes that's right and and, and uh, is, yes i mean gonna... it's it's very it's sorry sorry jay it's, it's it's very very much um you know property bubble collapses and again you've got a government which at that time was actually socialist uh doing all the central planning all that sort of stuff and getting away with it because if you like of the credit bubble but of of course, it's rather like the tide going out. You know, it's um, <laughs> you can see who's wearing what when the tide goes yeah, out. Yeah, that, that was a buffet, they say, wasn't when it? the tide goes out. <laughs> yes. Okay, so exactly. the tide has gone out in Spain, and we're seeing the people that that aren't able to pay their mortgage. I mean, that must be a large percentage of defaults. Uh, is the housing problem there as big as it is in the United States? Similar or what? Um, I think that the run-up in prices was probably a bit greater than it was in the United States. Even greater than this, uh, the Yeah, and the correction so far hasn't been as great, which uh, suggests to me that there is more to come. More to come. Um, so, Spain, what about Italy? What, what, are they more like France, maybe just this enormous amount of socialism and uh, taxation or regulation against wealth creation? Uh, well, the Italians... Um, are slightly different insofar as before this uh, sovereign debt crisis um, hit southern Europe, uh, they were 
I mean, they were a country whose budget was sort of in balance. I mean, Berlusconi gave us a lot of entertainment, but he actually kept things, you know, the, the, the finances of the country on a relatively even keel. Its background problem, however, was uh, a legacy of a huge amount of government debt. I mean, well over 100% GDP. And so you have uh, a loss of this debt has to be rolled and has to be rolled and has to be rolled. So uh, as a result, the cost of rolling it became the chief determinant as to whether the country's uh, budget um, ran at a surplus or at a deficit because of the interest costs. And as soon as the interest rates started rising uh, in the wake of the Greek problem, um, suddenly um, the budget deficit started increasing and the whole thing looked like really rather difficult. Um, and at that stage, the ECB basically forced out Berlusconi and put their own man in, Mario Monti. So, so um, that, if you like, is, <laughs> in terms of insolvency, uh, Italy is a work in progress at the moment. And we have Ireland, too, as another country that's had its troubles. Uh, how do they stand now? Well, that is tragic. I mean, they had a property boom which at least rivaled America's probably even more. Um, and, uh, of course, when the sort of, if you like, the property markets worldwide started imploding, I mean, it certainly imploded in, in, in uh, Ireland. Uh, and it broke the banks. And the banks certainly um, had been pretty unwise in quite a lot of their lending. And the other problem they had was that because uh, Ireland was... A, um, an offshore financial centre. A lot of the um, financing of uh, residential mortgage-backed securities in America and all the rest of it all went through Ireland. And uh, the uh, the Irish banks, and I think Allied Irish was the was the main, uh, um, uh, if you like, culprit in this. Um, you know started getting involved in all sorts of imaginative lending schemes. And, of course, imaginative lending schemes are fine. While credit is still expanding, but when it stops, suddenly you find you're faced with all sorts of unexpected losses. So that bank basically was bust, had to be bailed out by um, the, um, if you like, the euro system, uh, the eurozone system. And, um, you know, they're still paying for it. And, uh, I see uh, financial repression continuing there for some time. Mm. Now, to be fair to the Irish, they are actually, they do seem to be maintaining uh, their payment position, but um, they're not out of the woods yet. And if there is further deterioration in the overall economic situation, then they are doubly vulnerable. Well, if they're retaining their, their payment situation, they're probably doing so at great pain. And then this raises another issue. If they, they can't be oblivious to what's going on in Greece and elsewhere, it certainly seems to me that countries are looking to see if others are getting bailed out. And if they get bailed out, they expect that they, that they themselves should get bailed out as well. Isn't this part of the issue that we're looking at, you know, uh, continent-wide pathology, essentially, economic pathology? And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like there's one little country that has cancer. It's like the whole place has cancer, the whole continent. Yes, so absolutely right. Um, uh, the, 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 it's extremely sensitive in Dublin. Um, you know, if um, uh, bailout terms were offered to anyone which looked like being generous compared to uh, what the Irish had to suffer, then, uh, you know, there is a lot of, you know, a lot of um, pressure to renegotiate. 
the situation. In the in the case of Spain, which is perhaps the the, the big situation. Um, uh, in fact, what happened was that quite a lot of the repressive moves on the economy, which Ireland faced as a result of uh, the Eurozone's positions, actually had already been taken. So, um, you know, the situation isn't, you know, it's not sort of quite the same. The idea that money goes to Spain with fewer strings attached actually isn't quite true because a lot of the measures were already being taken in Spain which Ireland was forced to take. So um, these things are never quite so simple, but you are absolutely right, Jay, to uh, point to the, um, the problems that are likely to arise from unequal treatment uh, mm -hmm. between debtors. Mm -hmm. And that could, uh, could uh, I would think, lead to some more of this sort of um, uh, international disputes and anger towards you know, one country against another that they were trying to actually avoid by establishing the euro. Uh, the European Union to start with. I want to ask you a little bit about the uh, about interest rate spreads because you know earlier on you talked about how the Greek rates came down after they joined the Union, almost to the same level as as uh, as, uh, as German rates, I guess. Uh, and then, of course, they started to spread and blow out. Uh, where are Greek rates and some of these other country rates now relative to German rates? So there, is there a big spread now? Oh, there's huge huge spread. Um, uh, Sort of off the top of my head. Well, um, you don't, Germany, just, just in just in general, it seems to me that what that's general, telling us then is okay. that is that there's really no confidence that the European Union can come in and socialize these these problems. Uh, no, there, there is there, there is a confidence. Of course, what we're seeing is we're seeing capital flight. The capital flight is going into Germany and German government bonds, and it's going away from Spain, Greece, Italy, and so on and so forth. So that exacerbates the position. If you like, the arbitrage is not happening. It's going totally the wrong way. Right. Yeah, so it's, uh, and this is what we're seeing in the United States to an extent, too, with the dollar uh, holding up as well as it is in spite of trillions of dollars of stimulus and money created out of nothing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, well, well, this is, the, the, the point is that we have, a, a, um I would say almost Western world is in big trouble, including the United States. We haven't talked about the U.S. because you're uh, you're over there in, on that side of the pond, and I think your perspective is much much better than mine for sure uh, on what's going on in Europe. But um, the banks are in trouble there, right? Banks around, I mean, uh, banks everywhere are in trouble these days because they have all these crappy loans in their books, and so their their equity is in, is inadequate. Uh, and, and the Basel III Accord, there is a new Basel, Basel III Accord or Basel III uh, proposals that are going forward. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. I know gold, they are proposing to make gold equal to, I think, treasuries and cash as a reserve asset, right? Yes, that is, that, that's right. And that's a very, very important um, change. Uh, because uh, I think outside the um, bullion banks that are members of London Bullion Market Association, there are very, very few banks, if any, that actually hold gold uh, as an asset on their balance sheets. Um, and this move from Basel III um, is going to, I think, generate uh, certainly some marginal interest, which could lead to quite a lot of gold buying. Okay, so... So you're saying that uh, there, there are banks in Europe that do have gold, though, right? 
Well, yes. I mean, the ones that do, obviously, are members of the London Bullion Market Association. And I think that's roughly 40, probably a little less than 40. But that's it out of how many thousand banks? Um, I mean, the, the, and the only reason they actually hold gold is because uh, they um, have gold accounts for their customers uh, on an unallocated basis. So when I say they hold gold, actually it's slightly more complex than that because they might hold, let us say, 10 tons of gold and owe their customers 200 tons of gold. Mm-hmm. So it's not quite, you know, they're not quite gold holders in that sense. In, in, it's probably more accurate to say that the bullion banks are short of gold. Okay, so let's say they're holding gold on behalf of their customers, then can that count under Basel III as a reserve asset? Um, yes, it does, if it is on the bank's balance sheet. And here you've got to understand the difference between allocated and unallocated gold. If um, uh, you uh, have an unallocated account with your bank, then basically it's like an ordinary money deposit. In other words, the bank owes it back to you. It's not yours, it's the bank's. The bank owes it to you. The bank is your counterparty. So that is the bank's gold at that stage. That is why they um, charge very little in the way of fees to hold an unallocated gold account for you. If, on the other hand, you want it allocated, then they start charging a lot of money because they don't like to be in a position where they don't have use of that gold. Alistair, uh, we've only got a minute or so left here, but I read somewhere that some of the banks in Europe are selling their gold and buying treasuries to bolster their treasury, their uh, capital account. Does that sound right to you? No, it doesn't, it doesn't sound right to me at all. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that. Um, uh-huh. Okay. But no, it doesn't, it doesn't sound right at all. Because, so why, uh, is, why, is the, why are, the, Basel, why are the, the bankers proposing Basel III to include gold as, a, uh, as an equal asset to, to treasuries? I think it's come about because there has been pressure from the London bullion market um, to upgrade gold in that respect as collateral. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the derivatives markets in London accept gold as collateral. So this leaves the bank, the, the banking community in a situation where everybody else is accepting gold as collateral. Um, but, uh, you know, they pay a penalty because it's a 50 percent haircut. And I think right. it's that that has persuaded the, uh, the Bank for International Settlements, uh, who oversee the Basel Committee, to put forward this proposal that um, gold should be accepted uh, as, um, uh, as, as, as a haircut less, if you like, um, asset. Right. And do you think this is going to lead somehow towards a, uh, a gold-backed monetary system ultimately? And if so, how long might that take? I don't think it will lead to a gold-backed monetary system. No, I think that, um, you know, the, 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 the problems we have are so great. The only way the central bankers can see out of it is to have unfettered printing capability. And that, after all, is what we've got with QE and Infinity um, in America at the moment. We've well, also I got think, QE... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we've also got QE um, in Japan, uh, where they're working their way through as $128 billion equivalent. Uh, we've got it in the UK, where we've got £50 billion, which was announced in July, and that's going to take us up to November. Uh, you've got the ECB, um, who are doing it one way or the other, with or without um, Sorry, either in or outside the law, as it were, of their, or their own mandate. I mean, all the major banks are printing money at an ever-accelerating rate. Yeah, I guess that and, leads and they, to the... You know, they, 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 don't want to, they, they don't want to lose that ability, because if they lose that ability, it threatens 
to topple the whole thing over because they need to print money to stop bankruptcy, stop the banking system falling over, stop governments falling over and so on and so forth. It's, they see it as their most important um, policy tool. Well, it's an important policy tool to keep the status quo in place, I guess, and to keep markets from working. Alistair, we are out of time, unfortunately. I had a whole lot more questions. We'll have to have you on again if you're willing to come back. Thank you. If I pronounce your name right, will you come back again? Oh, you don't even need to do that. I've been called many <laughs> things in my life. I don't get upset. Thanks, Jay. <laughs> okay, Alistair McLeod, thank you so much for being with us. Folks, don't go away. I'll have some closing thoughts on today's show as well as our next week's guests. I'll tell you about them. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. The, uh, we have just uh, three minutes or so left to talk to you uh, about today's show. I, uh, I really did uh, enjoy the discussion that we had uh, about Beyond the Pale Horse uh, with uh, 
uh, earlier on today, uh, and I think that uh, that is something I would highly recommend you try to uh, to watch. Uh, you can uh, go to beyondapalehorse.tv uh, not only to uh, to order the the film, the video. Uh, that really, I think, outlines uh, where we are and why we're in, in deep trouble in the United States. Uh, many of the reasons. It's a very, very good documentary uh, that that explains why uh, why our country is in trouble, why our liberties and our freedoms are in decline. Uh, and I think it's very important uh, that you watch that. So beyond a pale horse. Dot TV, and also there are a lot of other important documents. Uh, one that I really want to go and read and get my hands on is the Agenda 21 document that uh, has in mind what the people at the Bilderberg, uh, the Bilderbergers have in mind for you and for me, how they expect us and anticipate uh, enslaving all of us uh, for their own uh, glory and wealth. Well, we certainly, I think, see the direction of that. Gene Epstein talked a little bit about, uh, some, gave us some optimistic uh, reasons to think maybe things aren't all that bad. Um, I would like to believe Gene. I hope he's right. The Fraser Institute is certainly uh, worth uh, paying some attention to. I often pay attention to the Fraser Institute with respect to which countries pose the most political risk for mining companies that I look at. I think they do some excellent work as well. Uh, Behold a Pale Horse, my wife reminds me. I must have misspoken. Behold a Pale Horse is the name of the uh, video, and beholdapalehorse.tv is where you need to go. Agenda 21, that document, the Communist Manifesto, the Declaration of Independence, and the U.S. Constitution, those are documents that you can pick up. They're very important. Most Americans don't have any clue about the Constitution. It's not taught in our schools. Why not? Well, I think we've had plenty of guests on this show that have explained why Americans aren't really allowed to know or aren't being taught about free market economics, about our Constitution, about our Declaration of Independence, which was a radical uh, document at the time in 1776, because it basically said that we are not properties of the state. The state is here to serve us, not the other way around. The state is here to protect our rights, those God-given rights that our Creator gave us, and that was the view of our founders of our Constitution. And that makes all the difference in the world in terms of our philosophy of government. I mean, if you don't believe that we are that we are given rights uh, by God or by our Creator, uh, that we are unique individuals that the state doesn't own, then it, it doesn't allow us to go in the direction of Obamacare. It doesn't allow us to go in the direction of socialism. It means that we are each responsible, and uh, and that doesn't mean that we are to abuse each other. We certainly are not. Uh, and there are laws that, that uh, are, are there to keep us from, from going over the edge, for sure. And we do need to have government for those purposes, I think, for, for the very basic things. Our founders believe that. But we have gone way, way beyond what anything that the uh, founders of our country envisioned for us. We have become, in essence, and if you look at the Communist Manifesto and compare it with the United States, you'll see that we are not that we are not very far removed if, in fact, we are at all removed from a communist philosophy. And both parties are guilty, though I like to say that the Republicans are a little bit more on the fascist end of the spectrum and the Democrats more on the communist end of the spectrum. As far as I'm concerned, the founding fathers of this country were right in the middle in neither of those extreme dictatorial directions. In any event, that's all the time we have today. I do want to tell you about next week we're going to have Greg uh, Palast. Um, he'll be talking to us about his book, uh, he's uh, written a book called The Billionaires and Bailout Bandits, and it's about uh, the attempts on the part of some uh, rich, powerful people 
uh, to steal the election away from Obama. Well, yes, he is from the left, and uh, probably there won't be everything that he says I have to agree with. But honestly, the more I talk to both people on the left and the right, I realize that uh, that there are truths to be had, certainly not from the mainstream media for the most part, but from the fringes. And so we're looking forward to talk to Greg uh, Palast, and also, uh, hopefully, well, I believe we're going to have Hank Thomas. He's written a book called A Broken Sausage Grinder, which talks about our government and how it's broken down. We'll also be talking to you uh, with, I think, uh, our energy company is going to be with us next week, so we'll be talking uh, to them as well. Airway um, Energy will be with us. Uh, and so that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks again for listening. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my executive producer, and Justin Jackman for making this show logistically possible, or our sponsors for making it economically possible. Thanks to you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.